Good morning, Grace. Uh, we are in the Word in 1 Peter chapter 4, as uh, Kevin read for us. And as I think about the year 2013, I mean, we're already into April. It's hard to believe that we're into spring. But I, I, I was thinking back as I was meditating on this message, and I was thinking about 2012. And 2012, I mean, we had some pretty wacky stuff go on in 2012. Remember May 21st, 2012? Remember what that was? Harold Camping, remember this guy, he was on family radio, and he said, this is going to be the end of the world, right? And remember, when it didn't happen, he pushed it back to October. <laughs> and then you had the whole Mayan prophecy, remember that? And, and, and it seems to be like in our DNA that so many, every, so many years, everybody's talking about the end of the world. And the Bible does talk about the end of the world, and it's given many of us a bad name. I mean, when we think about the end of the world, we think of nut jobs kind of like those guys. Or we think of the guy in New York City wearing that big giant plaque. You know, you know what I mean? That little, what is that thing? I don't even know what that thing is. But they, they wear it and it says, the end is near. You know, and the guy's walking around. And you get that picture in your mind when we talk about it. But even though the guys say that, I mean, the Bible does say that the end is near. That we are coming to the end of the world. That it was inaugurated in the person of Jesus Christ with his, his death, burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. That ushered in the beginning of what is known as the end times. And that he is coming. And as I thought about that, the end of the world, I couldn't help but think of the song. You know, what I mean? you know the song, right? You've already looked at the sermon title. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it, and fine, right? I feel fine. It's R.E.M. It's a song, and, and people are saying it's the end of the world, and you know what? That song had a revival during the Herald Camping thing on May 21st, and then it had another revival on December 21st, because people are saying it's the end of the world, and as we know it, and I feel fine. Now, most people say that as a, as a way of mocking using that song as a way of mockery, that it's the end of the world, big deal. But for the Christian, we do know that there is coming an end to the world. And it, is a, it can be a very scary thing. It can be a very rattling thing to many of us as we think about time coming to its completion. But we can feel fine, not, not this pseudo-hope, or pseudo-security, or a false hope, but we have a true hope in Christ that shows that we can feel fine, not because of what we have done, but because of trusting in what Jesus has done. And that we can find faith, we can find hope, we can find love, and we can find this security as we are anchored to God and His Word through the person of Jesus Christ and what He has done for each one of us. And though the end of the world is coming, we can feel fine. Now, the early church was wondering when the end is coming, and Peter, in his, this letter that we're talking about, he says to them, you know, the end of the world is coming, but even though it is coming, this is how I want you to behave. Because many people, just like in Y2K, remember back then? People were doing what? I mean, I had friends that I knew. I mean, people were agitated. People were, were stocking up on stuff, getting ready for the end of the world. I had friends uh, of mine who they actually had like their entire cellar filled with supplies. And they were thinking about that. And people were rattled. But they were trying to get prepared. Now, 
Jesus, or, or Peter, uh, through the Spirit, is saying to us, we can feel fine, we can be ready, and not in this, this way where we drop out and we try to stockpile. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that we can feel ready for the end of the world by being about what God has made us to do, being about the task that he has purposed, uh, purposed us to fulfill. That God has a job for us, and if we're doing our job for him, and we are being the people that God wants us to be, we're going to be fine. We're going to be okay. We focus on him, knowing that he controls time and he has it in his hands. So that's what we're going to see today. How can we be fine as the end of the world does come to its completion? How can we feel safe and secure when everything around us is falling by the way? And we can feel safe and secure because of what God has done for us. And as we feel secure, we need to know that we need to do these other things. This security involves several different things that Peter wants us to understand today. But before we go any further, let's pause for a moment, invoking God's Spirit to speak to us through the preaching of His Word today. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence because of Jesus. Because of our faith in Him, we are with Him. Lord, we can enter into your presence because of what He has done. Not because of anything that we have in and of ourselves. We are broken. We are rebellious. We are sinners. And we are very treasonous. Rebels in our actions. Rebels by our birth. But Lord, you have brought us near through the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son. That you have shown us mercy. And Lord, you desire us to be holding fast and holding forth the word of life to this lost world. Lord, just as many were we're going down on the Titanic. Others were swimming around, telling him about Jesus, knowing that the end was near. Lord, may we be found as faithful, faithful pro- proclaimers, faithful to adhere, to not get rattled, but to hold fast to you, knowing that you hold time in your hands. And nothing, nothing will happen without your allowance. So we come before you, seeking to understand what it means uh, to live faithful lives as the end of the world approaches. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's look right within our text. Let's jump right in. In 1 Peter chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. The end there in Greek is a word named telos. telos, And it literally means come near, to be at hand, approaching. It's the idea of, of, I mean, we could even look at it from a football analogy, like the goal line's in sight. It's there. It's, it's, it's just inches to go before time runs out. I mean, it's a countdown clock. It is approaching. It is nearing its completion, completion, time of perfection. God's plan is going to be fulfilled in its completion with his consummation as time stops. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, for the sake of your prayers. Now, isn't that strange to think that he's saying that the end of time is approaching, but you're to keep a cool head and self-control for the sake of your prayers? I mean, that sounds strange to me. Why prayer? And I realize that as I even thought of that question, that I have placed a much lower priority than God has on prayer. God has placed a huge focus on prayer. And if we're to find security and hope and feel fine at the end of the world, then it means that we need to be praying effectively. 
He's saying that we need to be sober-minded, self-controlled for the sake of our prayers. He, in other words, if for us to feel fine, we have to find our root in him. We have to learn what it means to pray effectively and understand the priority that God places on prayer. I mean, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. Did you know the only time that Jesus ever showed anger was when he cleansed the temple because he said it'll be my house will be a house of prayer. I mean, prayer is is indicative of not only our relationship with God, but it's God places such a priority on prayer that if our most intimate earthly relationships are messed up, then God's not going to hear our prayers. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7. We actually covered this some time ago. Peter is speaking to husbands about prayer. And he says this, I want to show you this this passage right here. Uh, Actually, before, let's go to the next two slides there, Carl. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, if your relationship with your most intimate partner your spouse is messed up, your prayer life is going to be messed up. It's a huge deal. Men, this is a huge thing. you got to treat your wife and live with her in an understanding way, which we laughed about this a few weeks ago because that's one thing that men have a very hard time doing, is understanding women. I'm never going to get there. Ladies, you're a mystery. I don't understand why you do the things that you do. I don't understand why you need 150 things just to wash your face. I don't need that. I, I have one thing to, I mean, seriously, I have one thing to wash my hair, wash my body, and if I could brush my teeth with it, I would. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I don't want to use anything else. I, I, I mean, when my wife and I were talking about getting ready for bed, I mean, she's like, let's get ready for bed. And I'm like, oh, for me, I mean, she's like, for her, that means like conversation as she's getting ready and washing her face. And I'm just like, this is another 20 minutes. <laughs> for me, get ready for bed means I'm in the bed. Let's go to sleep. And she's got to, I mean, it's all this stuff that women do. It's different. And and men, we have to live with them in an understanding way. Understanding way. To know that men and women are different. We are different. And that means, though, men, that women are, we have to, understanding means for the entirety of our marriage. Remember the, the cliche we've shared many different times in here? Women marry men hoping that they will change and they don't. And men marry women hoping they will change, I mean, that they won't change and they do. Very true, is it not? It's very true. It's very true. I mean, men, I hate to say it, but we don't change a whole lot. I remember this became a reality to me when I went on a Promise Keepers retreat when I was 19 years old. That I was with all these older men, expecting, expecting it to be the most mature fellowship. It was like I was at a junior high sleepover. These are 55-year-old men. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is... This is great! (laughs) You know, it's true. That says we are to live in an understanding way, man, which means that knowing that our wife is going to change over time. You committed for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Be sensitive to that. Understand the changes. I mean, God places a huge priority on prayer that we need to be able to pray effectively. So we have to have our relationship with our spouse. Right. And we see Jesus, as I mentioned before, place a huge priority on prayer. We see that in the book of Matthew. When Jesus is cleansing the temple, he says this. He goes, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
Now, it's interesting. I always wondered, because he's quoting a passage there when he's, he's quoting God responding to Solomon at the temple's dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8. And he says all of these different things in 1 Kings chapter 8. See, Solomon is praying to God as they're dedicating the Jewish temple. And he, he says that this would be a place for people that could pray for forgiveness for sins. If you needed forgiveness, you'd go to the temple in 1 Kings 8.30. If you needed to be restored in your relationship with God because you had sinned, that was another thing that the, that the temple was uh, meant to be, is a place for restoration. It was a place of relief when drought came. People could come and seek God, and God would give them relief when drought came. Or even if a foreigner came into the temple praying in search of the one true God, God would even hear him so that, and here's this passage right here, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as, you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is by your name. See, God placed such a priority on the temple because that was the place where God and man would meet. But we know that Christ came and he became the personification, the embodiment of God's temple. Because God, he, in the human flesh is God. And that we, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, become temples of the Holy Spirit. That God then communes with us and has a desire to commune with us. He desires that we pray effectively and use this tool that he has given us. Now, if Peter understands that in order for us to pray effectively, it requires uh, two different things here. First of all, it involves being self-controlled self-controlled. And what he means by that is we need to have bodily control. We need to have bodily control. We need to mortify or put to death our, the sins of our flesh. We have to be able to control our bodies in holiness and in honor. Now Jesus talks about this, and we see this being brought out in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asked the disciples to pray. Remember that? He says, pray for me while I go over here. Pray. Watch, watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. And then he says this. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You've got to mortify your flesh, bodily control. See, that's what it means to be self-controlled. It also means that we need to have mental clarity. That's what the sober-minded means. And, and Paul talks about this. He talks about being uh, having this clarity and buffeting our body so we might be able to pray effectively and have bodily control and have mental clarity. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25 through 27. Paul says, by the Spirit, he says this, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Seed would have bodily control and then we are to have mental clarity. That's what it means to be sober-minded. To have a clear mind. Not to be under the influence of anything else. We've talked about this before. A lot of bars are called the place of spirits. Why? Because the person, when they're, when they're drinking so much alcohol, that the, the, the alcohol takes over, and the alcohol's in control. Here it's saying we, we have to be sober-minded, that we are in control, as we are subjecting ourselves and being filled with the Spirit of God. So we have to keep this clear mind, but for what reason? So we can pray. So we can pray. It's for the sake of connecting with God. Connecting with God. You know, I'm reminded of this. I'm going to date myself a little bit, but 
I remember being in college, and this was before cell phones, but we had calling cards. Remember those? Calling cards. And had a calling card, and I remember my mother getting me a calling card, this calling card. Now, did she want me to use this calling card to call everybody? Who was it for? To call her, Why? Right? My mom wanted to connect with me. See, God has given us this calling card through prayer because he wants to connect with us. He wants us to call him, to connect with him. He desires that so much to talk with us. See, many of us think that when we pray that we just have this list or we're not worthy to pray. We have this either this big giant list of things we have to pray through or we're just not going to pray if we can't do it all so we don't pray at all or, or we're just not good enough. And, you know, we aren't good enough in and of ourselves. We're only good because of Christ. And we come into God's presence through him. And God just doesn't want our list of requests. He wants our heart. He wants to hear your pains. He wants to hear your sorrows. He wants to hear your, your biggest victories as well as your defeats. Just like this earthly parent wants to hear about what's going on in your life. I want to hear about you. I care so much about you. That's what God does. He wants that with us. Do we pray? Do we take advantage of this tool? I think many of us skip over talking to God, and we'd rather talk to people because people talk back. Right? I'm reminded of a pastor I, I heard of once who had many different people come to him for counsel. And rather than talk to them immediately, he had them come in and sit in the sanctuary for 30 minutes. And then he would meet with them. And more often than not, the people didn't need to meet with him anymore. Why? Because they needed to meet with God first. They needed to be still and know that I am God. We're not good with being still, are we? Between having our radios on in the car, the TVs all the time, our phones... Uh, I mean, Twitter, Facebook, there's social media. Uh, I mean, we are wired 24-7, and sometimes we just need to disconnect and be silent. And many of us don't like that because it echoes the emptiness that we have within us. I'm reminded of this, this uh, group that I just read about the other day that have endeavored to create the most silent-proof room in the United States. It is 99% quiet. I mean, can you imagine that? You can't hear anything else. I mean, people say there's soundproof rooms, but there's not. I mean, there's really not. When I was in college, uh, I, we had a music building, and where all the, the different uh, musicians would go and practice in the practice room, and it was supposed to be a silent thing, and you couldn't hear other people. I mean, you could, but not very much, until the bagpiper came in and practiced. <laughs> you ever heard of bagpiper practice? I mean, it, you just got to forget what you're doing. I mean, seriously, earplugs doesn't, don't work. I mean, it's so loud. Uh, my neighbor plays the bagpipes. And every time he plays, I walk outside because I like bagpipes. And I, I actually grabbed my daughter and we walked over. And I think he thought we were <laughs> like having a problem and going to stop him. So he just runs in the house. And I'm like, no, dude, I like it. You see, many of us don't know how to be silent. And this is a place where we can go and just be be still and know that he is God. So God desires that we pray effectively to be still, to disconnect, to become un, un, just disconnected for a little while, unplugged, so we can pray effectively. And that requires bodily control. It requires mental clarity. And it's for the sake of connecting with God. But that's not it. That's not all that he's wanting for us and wanting from us. Look at our text. Let's look back at our text. 
Verse 8, above all. This is top priority. Put it number one in your queue. That's it. We are to keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, it means before all things, above all. Keep loving, continue loving. And the word there for, for uh, this earnestly is to keep wanting, uh, it means strenuous, intense, deeply. See, we're to be loving one another earnestly. Now, there's three things about loving one another earnestly that we need to understand. First of all, it's this. We can only love because Christ loved us first. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. See, the fact that God shows his love for us means that we can then love others. Now, many of us only feel that we can love others when those people are themselves worth loving. But see, God loves us even when we were not worth loving. Even when we were not worth loving. It's like C.S. Lewis described in Understanding Forgiveness. He says, God has forgiven the inexcusable in you, so now you can forgive the inexcusable in others. In other words, God loves you so much, now you can love other people. And we love because Christ first loved us. Now here's the second part to it. Love is a choice. What was it, journey? It's more than a feeling. It's, it's a choice. We choose to love. We do. We really choose to love. We have got this really messed up in our culture. We've talked about it. We talk about falling in love as if it's some giant sinkhole that you're just driving through and suddenly fell one day, plunged in. Oh, I'm in love. I can't get out. I've fallen and I can't get up. But love is a choice. It is a choice that we choose to love. We choose to overlook someone else's faults. It is a choice. And not only that, but it covers a multitude of sins covers a multitude of sins. Now, what does that mean? Does it literally mean that love acts as an atonement? No, that's not what it means. It means, then, that we love and overlook the faults and sins of those who have gone against us. Now, that doesn't mean there are consequences. That doesn't mean that it's going to be restored automatically. And it doesn't mean that every sin is overlooked or, or, or just covered. Because it says a multitude, not every single one, but a multitude. It's like this. We talked about this in our small group this past week. It's like with your children. and your, your, When their children are small, and they're looking at you, and then they smile real big, and then they take their hands and go, whack! You're like, ow! That hurts! But I love you! I'm not going to spank you right now. I'm overlooking what you did to me. Or when they're, when they're sitting down and they're, they're playing with their food and it flies everywhere and you're picking it up for the umpteenth time, you overlook that. It covers a multitude of their actions. When they leave their clothes on the floor, because they always leave their clothes on the floor, we still love them. And when they get older and they wreck the car. <laughs> now some of you, you were with me with the peas. But it came to the car. No, 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 no. Even then, even then, we love them. Overlooks a multitude of sins. We're to love one another earnestly. Love one another earnestly. We're also to be serving one another 
faithfully. Feeling fine at the end of the world, that's, it means to be at your job, at your task. Jesus even tells parables at, at, about it, of being at our job, at our post, doing what he has made us to do. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Each literally means each one. If you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, the moment that you are saved, God placed his spirit in you to help you look more like Jesus. And he equipped you with a gift. The word in Greek is charisma, from which we get the word charismatic. It is a gift of the spirit of God that God places in you, and it's a divine endowment to do what God has made and purposed you to do. That's what it is. Every single person, without exception, has a spiritual gift. Every single one. When I became, a, when I received Jesus as my Savior, I didn't know anything about spiritual gifts. But I do know one thing: I needed to preach. I couldn't stop myself. It didn't matter where I was; I was preaching. Because I knew that I knew that God had called me to do something. Because it was the Spirit of God working in me. What has God called you to do and gifted you to do? He has given us that gift to serve one another. Now, we have a really bad understanding of service today. When we think of service today, we think of someone that's working at a fast food joint. Service. We forget that Jesus himself served. Remember Jesus' last night on earth when he ate with his disciples? What did he do? Took off his outer garment and he took the form of a servant. He washed the disciples' feet. Unheard of. I mean, you want to talk about servant menial jobs? That was the most menial job that you could do. And that's why Peter said, uh-uh. No, you, not you, Lord. You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash you, I have no part from me. And Jesus said this about that encounter to his disciples. He says, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. He goes on. He said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, it's interesting here that some Christian groups have taken Jesus' words here to mean that foot washing should be an ordinance, like baptism or communion. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying that I've left you an example of service. That I am here to show you that we, if I am the Lord of all, I'm showing you that I'm coming humbly and we are to humble ourselves and serve faithfully. Now, that, now, many of us, though, we're not very good at service. We don't like the idea of service. We like the idea of, of receiving and not giving. Now, it's interesting enough that, in a, that there's two types of growth. There's a thing called symbiotic growth and there's a thing called parasitic growth. Symbiotic growth is growth that happens when the two forces are involved are benefiting from one another in the growth. There's a mutual benefit there. Parasitic growth is where one is benefiting from the, the other, but the other one is not giving back to it. I mean, it's a parasite is what it is. See, many of us as followers of Jesus are spiritual parasites. We don't like that, but it's true. We like to receive, preach to me, sing to me, listen to me, counsel me, but we don't give anything back. 
See, the Bible says that we are each given a gift to show and help one another. We're to serve one another. We're not to be spiritual parasites. We've all been there at one time or another, and there are certain times that we're going to be needy and we can't give back, and that's okay. There's different stages of life. But overall, is the tenor of our life just to get, or is it also to give as well, even when we're going through a difficult time? Now let's go back up to our previous verse for a moment. We're also to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now if we're to serve one another, then it means showing hospitality. That literally means entertaining of strangers. In the ancient world, there was a lack of network or decent hotels for ordinary people and it resulted in readiness to provide board and lodging for friends and other suitable sponsored travelers that were more highly esteemed than it is today. But we see this example throughout the Old Testament of people opening their homes at tremendous cost to themselves. Abraham is entertaining strangers. In the book of Judges, we see a, a man entertaining a Levite. And even when, when personal harm could come to him, he offers up himself. And you know, it's interesting that this concept still survives in the Middle East today. Hospitality is huge. This is why some theorists imagined why Osama bin Laden it took so long for him to be caught. Because people assumed that other people took him in, and they would rather die than give him up. No matter what he's done. Because in their understanding of hospitality, it means taking, uh, taking control and help of another person to hurt for ourselves. We're to be showing hospitality. Is your home open to other people? Is it? I'm not saying it's got to be perfect. If you've ever been to my house, you'll see that we, we live life. We live life. And there's sometimes there are dishes in the sink. There's sometimes there's clothes on the floor. Okay, there's a lot of time there's clothes on the floor. But that's not my wife's fault, because she's going to yell at me after this sermon. <laughs> that's my fault. I'll take responsibility for that. Okay, I'm a slob. Ask her. <laughs> All right? So we invite people over. When's the last time you had an unbeliever in your house? Are you opening up your house? This summer, we're going to be doing a thing called Three's Company, where we're asking families to get together, three families, just to get together once I mean, it doesn't have to be the same three families, but you invite two other families over and, and newer families that are just trying to get plugged in and maybe another family and, and come over and just hang out, play a game, play Settlers of Catan, do something, I don't care, play cards. Just be together, get to know someone, eat some food. I know you like to eat, right? Be together, be hospitable. Is your house open? Are you inviting people over? That's what we got to do. I mean, some of you can't. I understand that. You might live in a place where that can't happen. But are you, uh, encourage people, hey, can I come over? Can I hang out? Let's talk. Let's get to know one another. We have to be the body of Christ. That means showing hospitality to one another. Now, we're to do so without what? Murmuring, complaining, or grumbling. That's what it means. Now, we're good at doing stuff, but sometimes we don't have the best attitude when we do it, right? I would ask for how many of you complain, but everyone would raise their hand. We all complain. We're master complainers, right? We have PhDs in complaints. We make the final four every time. We are elite. But it's saying doing without complaining. That's hard to do. Bite your tongue. Do it without complaining. Now, the question really is about stewardship. 
stewardship. If God's given us this gift, if God's given us all these resources, we're then to use it. Now, it's interesting. I want you to see this passage right here. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. It's talking about spiritual gifts, that as we've all been given gifts, what are we to do with it? Are we to use it for our own good? No. Notice the passage. It says, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, meaning that it's for everybody else. You are gifted to use that gift to serve the body of believers. We're to be good stewards of God's varied grace. The word steward referred to a slave who was responsible for managing his master's property or household and for distributing wages, food, etc. to its members. See, we're to be using this gift. Now, we have been each given to serve the, the rest of the body of Christ. Now, what happens if we decline to use that? If we, we don't use our gift, what happens to the body? We miss out, right? Think about it. The Bible c- considers us to be the body of Christ, right? Well, let's take that illustration or metaphor a little different direction. The body is made up of a series of systems, right? The immune system, the circulatory system, uh, all the other systems, a lot of systems. And we have them. And what happens if one of them fails? Does the whole body suffer? So when we're all doing what God has given us to do, what happens? We become primetime athletes, capable of great feats. When we're all working together, I mean, I like, to, I like feats of athletic prowess. You know, I saw a special this week, the 30 for 30 on ESPN, Bo Knows. You guys remember Bo Jackson? That guy was a freak of nature. I mean, he was. He, I mean, he... He was. He still has run the fastest forty time in NFL Combine history in four point one two. It's insane. And not only with that, but he he could run. Fo- he could do football. He could do baseball. And it was like he was heads head and above everybody else. And they said a lot of time it was just natural ability. Why? Because everything was functioning together in the right way. See, when we are functioning together in the right way, think about what God can accomplish through us. Think what feats that made people stop and go, "Wow, did that really happen?" Did God really do that through them? I mean, that's incredible. If God can take 12 men and change the world, think what he can do with us when we're yielded to him. That's a pretty amazing thought. What has God called us to do in this community? What has God called us to do for the world? I mean, have you thought about that? I've been meditating on that in prayer recently and saying, Lord, I know you want us to reach the community, but I also know you want us to some way reach the world. And with all the mediums that we have today, we can reach anywhere. I mean, I, I do a little blogging. Do you know where the biggest readers of my blog are? They're not in America, and you guys aren't reading. <laughs> you know where they are? Russia. I have twice the amount of Russian readers. I've never been to Russia. I don't speak Russian. I have a connection with a group that I go and interact with once a year. And God is using that, I mean, just to reach them. And I'm amazed. Think about that. Think about all the countries of the world. If we're all doing the gifts that we, using the gifts that we have, how many countries could we reach? How many areas? I mean, we could reach the farthest reaches of South America. We could reach Patagonia. We could reach Papua New Guinea. We could go to Indonesia or Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur. We could go to Brunei. I mean, we could, we could reach anyone. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. 
When we're all yielded to him and doing the responsibility and task that God has for us. Now, how do you find out? Some people say, well, I don't know what my gifts are. Well, we have a thing called a place test. A place test. You go online to villagebible.org. Is it Bachelorette's Place, Scott? Scott is our place coordinator. Where it's, it's where you go and learn about your giftedness. That God has arranged the personal experiences of your life, your natural talents, and your spiritual giftedness in such a way as to bring his name glory. The question is, are you going to be a good steward of it? I mean, many of us have seen those athletes that they look like raw this physical specimens, and they're, you're just like, why can't they do a good, uh, I mean, why aren't they dominating? What happened? See, God has placed the body of Christ to dominate in a way by service and using and operating together the way that God wants it to operate. But it's this unfulfilled potential. We don't want to have that unfulfilled potential. We want to use that potential that God has given and placed within us that his name might receive glory. And as we are focusing, and I mean, as the end of the world is approaching, we need to be doing everything that we can in the way that God has gifted us to bring his name glory. That means praying effectively. That means loving earnestly. It means serving faithfully. But it also means that we need to be doing this service in the power of God's spirit. In the power of his spirit. Notice that we are to serve or to speak the oracles of God by the strength that God supplies. See, many of us don't know what that means. There's a story that Tony Evans tells about a lady who was living out in the boondocks. She didn't have any electricity, but wanted it. She called the electric company, and they made arrangements so that a line could be gotten out to her that she could have all the benefits of electricity. After delivering electricity to her for her home for almost six months, someone at the company noticed that she only used one unit of electricity. One unit. A serviceman was sent out to check and make sure there was no problem. He rang her doorbell, and when she answered, he asked, Hello, miss, are you using your electricity? She said, Why, yes, I am. He, he said, may, may I ask what it was for? What are you using it for? Well, she said, Well, when it gets dark, I turn it on long enough for me to light my kerosene lamp. See, the woman didn't understand the power that she had. She had all this power that could keep things lit all night long, but she was settling for a kerosene existence. See, that's how many of us are. We only use the Spirit of God just when, it's, when we're in trouble or when we feel good. See, God wants us to, to tap into that, to plug in, that he's made us for a reason. It's like, it's like we're all electric guitars, right? An electric guitar, you can just, have you ever seen an electric guitar or heard an electric guitar played when it's not plugged in? Can you hear much? But when you plug it in, you hear it everywhere, right? See, we're all made to be amplified by the Spirit of God. When we're in our flesh, you can't hear much. But when we're plugged into the Spirit, God does something amazing. God does something amazing. So we must make sure that we are operating within the Spirit of God. And how do we do that? We put to death the deeds of our flesh and we drink in and read and apply the Word of God. And then seek Him in prayer. Some people say, which is more important, Bible reading or prayer? To which one pastor responded, which wing of a plane is more important, the left or the right? They're both essential to fly. We need both. We need both. We must make sure that we are tapping into God's spirit. Now let's look at verse 11. I mean, why do we do all this? We see that answered in verse 11. 
in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, we want to see God made supreme in everything. Why? Because when he is, he receives glory and we increase in joy. See, God has made us for a reason, and that is to glorify him. And that means we glorify him by showing how great he is, by recognizing his lordship in all aspects of life. We want him to be supreme in everything that we do. That means he should be supreme not just on Sunday morning at 9.30. It means that God is supreme in my workplace. Meaning that God is in my thoughts and that I order and do my job according to the principles of God's word. I don't do it as a means of eye service. I don't do it as a means of complaining. That I do it because I know that I work for him above this earthly manager. It's the same way at our our schools. We do our work to the glory of God. Not just to get a grade or just to pass, but to do it our very best. It's in our athletics. It's in our hobbies. It's in our entertainment choices. Is God supreme in every aspect of your life? Are you relishing his supremacy? That's what the scripture is saying, that we are to be relishing his supremacy. As we get ready for the end of the world, we need to show how great he is by ordering our lives under the umbrella of his lordship and recognizing that everything that we do is for him. That's why Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch theologian and politician, he recognized this truth. And he said something quite profound. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He wants everything of your life. Does he have it? Does he have your money? Is he the Lord of your money? I'd say that many of us, no, we're not. We are slaves to debt. We have more money than in any other country in the world. I mean, we are so affluent. What are we doing? I mean, even, and I've said this, and I, and I mean it, there, there is something to say about being in a culture where, our, where more of those who are impoverished have weight issues. See what I mean by that? You go to India, and you're dealing with poverty, you're not seeing a lot of obese people. Now, I understand that people here are getting food, and it's not the best quality food. I understand all that. But the fact that there's food. I mean, God has blessed us for a reason. I mean, and we are to be showing his supremacy not only in our lives, but seeing it go to the farthest reaches of the earth. We're to be relishing his supremacy. And that involves three different things. First of all, it involves delighting in him. Delighting in him, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, does that mean your selfish desires? No, it means more of himself. The truest and most pure desire that we have is fulfilled in him. All of our earthly desires and appetites are warm-up acts for the true desire that we have that can only be fulfilled through Christ. The appetites to eat, to hear, to see, to take in beauty, to hear great music, to experience pleasures. The truest expression of those is found in Him. And when we delight in Him, God gives us more of Himself. That's the truest expression of our heart. We're to be delighting in Him. Delighting in Him. It also means demonstrating His Lordship. He has dominion. Now, I remember reading a bumper sticker several years ago, and it said this, 
live life as if God were real. It puzzled me. It was actually a church bumper sticker. And their point was, is that many of us say Jesus is Lord, but we live our life as functional and practical atheists. We say Jesus is Lord in church, we give a praise to the Lord, but our life throughout the rest of the six days of the week are lived as practical atheists. We're to live not only as if God is real, but because he is real. It means demonstrating his lordship tangibly. It means ordering your finances, getting out of debt as possible, honoring God with a portion of your income. It means serving the Lord the way that he desires you to serve. It means telling other people about who he is. It means ordering your entertainment, ordering your marriage, ordering all of your, 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 child, your parenting, uh, your pursuits, your priorities according to God's word. Is your life ordered in that way? Are you demonstrating his lordship? That he is Lord over all through your life? Or is it just something you do on Sunday? So we're to be be delighting in him so that other people might see God in us. Because when we live lives of delight in him, he is glorified. I mean, think about that. when, When a movie that you have seen is really good or you've seen a really cool website, what do you do with that? You share it, right? You tell other people to go to it. When we delight in God, we want to tell other people about who he is. How we delight, that's, when we delight in him, then it, it overflows to who we are. So to words, delight in him, demonstrate his lordship, and also declare his victory. It involves declaring his victory. That he is coming again. The world is going to end, and he is victorious over it. When Jesus was on the cross and said, it is finished, the plan of redemption was already finished, in fact, but it hadn't been completed yet in that we haven't seen it happen. The election results are in. The clock is now ticking down. It's the two-minute warning. It's time to get ready. And we're to declare that. We're to overflow from us so that we can talk to other people about who he is. We're to be telling other people who Jesus is by our words and our deeds. They're to match up. We're to be telling and proclaiming his name. Just as Scott was up here earlier talking about mission. Sometimes when we think of missions, we think of what's across the sea. Not understanding that each one of us has a mission from God. To make his name known in our own sphere of influence. That he has dominion forever and ever. Amen. Are you declaring his glory? Are you making disciples? Are you declaring who he is? I mean, many of us are so afraid of the time coming to an end that we're really shaken. There are some here today that are believers that are shaken. There are some here that you do not have Christ in your life, and you are tremendously shaken. God can take away that fear. Corey Ten Boom said this, and I love this quote. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. You may not know all the details of how time's going to shake out. But do you know that God knows it all? Don't worry about it. Daddy's got it under control. He knows it all. He's shared it. He's given us enough that we need through his word. And we trust and rest in that. It is the end of the world as we know it. And we feel fine because of who Jesus is. 
that he sits at the right hand of God, waiting for his enemies to make a footstool at his feet before, when he comes, when, before he comes again and consummates and brings us to himself as we see the culmination of the plan of salvation as we are seeing him in all of his glory. And every, every eye, every knee shall bow and declare that Jesus is Lord, for everyone will see him and give him the glory due his name. Do you have that hope? Do you feel fine as the end of the world is approaching? Are you really in panic mode? Maybe you're, you're on the, the other team. Two-minute warning and your team's down. Or maybe you're feeling confident. Maybe you feel like your team is up, but I guarantee you that God's going gonna to win and there's not going to be overtime. He's going to win. He's going to bring it to completion for His glory and our joy. Do you have that joy? Do you feel fine? Do you feel secure? You can have it by receiving Him as Lord and Savior. Then you will have peace with God through the person of Jesus Christ and trusting in Him. He will give you hope. He will give you purpose. And He will give you life for His glory and our joy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are reminded that the end of the world is coming. That you are bringing all of time to its end clock is ticking. Lord, as we are reminded that the, end, that the end is coming and we do not know the day, we do not try to predict it as some have, we know that we are not to be rattled, but we are to be about the task that you have given us. Help us to do all of the things that Peter has shown us by your spirit that we are to do. Help us to truly pray effectively. Give us hearts of prayer. Give us a desire to commune with you. And not just by drive-through prayers, but sustained times of commune, uh, communion with you. If it means getting up early, if it means just setting aside a part of our day, Lord, help us to commune with you. Help us to pray effectively. Help us to love earnestly. Help us to serve faithfully. And Lord, help us to relish your supremacy. Let us see you in every aspect of our lives. May it all be ordered for your glory and our joy. And Lord, please use us. Use us as this world is shipwrecked and, and sinking. May we speak to the, those who are on those boats that are going down about the truth of who you are, that they too might be saved. Lord, glorify your name in us and use us in whatever way you wish so your name might radiate from this place as a lighthouse not only into our community, but into the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.